Hello, welcome to Valley Talks. My name is Sylvia Gorajek and today I'm joined by Tim Schwab, Chief Revenue Officer at Connected. Tim was a CEO and co-founder at SalesBeach, a prospect engagement platform. Luckily for SalesBeach, they went through 500 startups program, but unfortunately for Tim, he got fired from his own company. This will be a story of how Tim went from poverty, criminal records, drug addiction, to a savvy entrepreneur that raised millions of dollars in Silicon Valley. Tim, thank you so much for coming to the show. Absolutely. I feel like we need to tell your story from the beginning. Sure. Uh, because this will give us a picture of, you know, what was happening later on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you were raised in Wisconsin. Yeah, I was born in Georgia, moved to Wisconsin shortly after. Mm -hmm. Family moved around a lot. Um, you know, my dad, really smart guy, he used to sell a computer in California in the 80s called Coco, which competed with the Apple II. And that company did not do as well as the Apple II. Uh -huh. But so it was always kind of a thing that was going on is technology. And so my, um, my parents got divorced around four. Um, my father got into an accident and a car accident. He was rear-ended, wasn't his fault. And from that he became um, disabled. Mm -hmm. He could still walk mm -hmm. and he could talk very well and, um, and all those kinds of things, but he was in a lot of pain and had to have three or four back surgeries over the years. Um, parents got divorced, uh, my sister and mom left. I was with my dad kind of alone in Wisconsin. And um, you know, as I grew up, uh, I realized that school in Wisconsin was not, not a really good you. fit for me. No, no. I, around once teenage years hit, I kind of realized I got what I needed to get what I wanted, um, or at least I thought I did. And so the internet was just becoming a thing, right? Okay. I'm 14, and so I, um, I kind of dove into that. I started playing uh, professional video game or video games professionally. So I started playing a game called Quake, um, and I ended up um, practicing with one of the world's biggest professional gamers now. His name is Fatality, and he's that's his job, is to be a professional gamer. He's a world champion. Mm -hmm. He's won millions of dollars through what he did. And so I practiced with him, and um, I was, uh, from not going to school and playing this video game, um, when I was 14, they flew me to Scotland to compete. Um, all the while, my father was kind of slowly deteriorating in health. Um, I went to this tournament. I got fifth place in the one-on-one -on -one competition. I was like the youngest guy there. I was around all of these internet gaming people who were a lot older than me and I'm like this 14 year old blonde kid mm -hmm. from America and everyone's like what are you who, what are you doing here who are you and so um, that was kind of the first time when I did something on purpose that was big that was something that no one in Wisconsin understood the internet was still new I kind of didn't tell anybody about it because it was embarrassing I'd have to explain like oh I play this video game on the internet and people would be like what were what you that? earning from that yeah, I mean, they paid for my trip. Um, we won some money in the tournament. It wasn't, a, you know, a lot of money. It was mostly just the travel expenses they took care of. Uh, but, you know, the people I played with ended up to go win a lot of money. Yeah. Millions. You were also involved in um, drug addiction. That came next. And yeah. some criminal record. Mm -hmm. That was next. Yes. Yeah, so when I came back from that trip, um, you know, nothing was really interesting anymore. Like that was incredible and I wanted to continue doing it. Um, but, you know, my father being in the position he was, he was prescribed a lot of painkillers. Mm -hmm. And so as a kid who, you know, was just learning about marijuana and getting dabbling here and there, because um, remember a lot of the people I played video games with online lived all across the world. 
And so I was talking to a lot of people who are older than me, more experienced. And so I'm 14, and um, you know, I start taking some of my dad's medication without him knowing. Slowly, I develop an addiction to OxyContin, which is basically synthetic heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, there's really no supervision. My dad's mostly sleeping yeah. all day at this point. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then what finally kind of crossed me over into really getting heavy into that lifestyle, that criminal lifestyle, was when uh, my two things happened. My father had a schizophrenic episode. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, while I was playing video games, he was, you know, coming into the room and saying that there were people outside and he had like a baseball bat and he thought they were taking photos of him. And um, just really wacky stuff that when you're 14 and that's your only parental figure, you're like, I know you're not right, but you're still my father. Mm-hmm. And he was such a good guy. The problem was is that he was always really good to me, but through because of his illness, it ended up looking and feeling like neglect mm-hmm. and being kind of abandoned by both of my parents. My mother being gone since I was four and my father. And so I developed an addiction. He had, uh, it wasn't a complete full-blown addiction when he had that episode. I was just kind of dabbling. Then he had the episode. I remember waking up the next morning and there was a police officer at my bed. And and he said, hey, you got somewhere you can go? I said, what? You know, I'm just waking up, what? And uh, I sat up in bed and he said, yeah, we got to take your father in for a little bit. He's acting a little strange and talking to neighbors. Mm And I'm like, I guess I can call my grandparents, but they live like an hour, two hours away Mm -hmm. driving. Um, And they're like, okay, good. And then they just like, see you later and took off. So they left you there? Yeah, so I was 14, it wasn't too weird. How about your mom? Did you have any relationship with her? She was an alcoholic for most of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And as as is typical with addiction, the alcohol wasn't the problem, it made the problem worse. Mm-hmm. And so um, she also a very good person, very compassionate. When she was not drinking, she was a great mother, but she also had uh, two other kids from two other um, relationships. Two other relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I, had a half, I have a half brother and a half sister through my mom, but I'm an only sibling through my, through my dad. Once he got back from the hospital, he was doing okay, but he was still prescribed these painkillers. And he never abused them. He took them as needed, um, and his health deteriorated to the point where I was picking up his prescriptions, doing all the laundry, you know, cooking, um, all of these things between 14 and 15. Um, and so it was basically my house. So it quickly became the place where my friends would come over, mm-hmm. and we would all, you know, do drugs. In the beginning, we were playing video games and doing other stuff, but yeah. then very quickly it started turning into, okay, this is where we just hang out and do drugs together. One day, some of my associates that were living at my house decided it would be a good idea to rob a veterinarian clinic Mm. and get uh, ketamine in particular. Now, what had happened at the same time is that after, you know, 12 years or so of my father being on OxyContin, the doctors and the people caring for them started getting pressure from, you know, the government or wherever else saying, like, we got to stop giving people OxyContin Mm -hmm. because people are abusing it. Um, And so they actually took him off of it and sent him to rehab and saying he was an addict when he wasn't. And so suddenly, that was gone. The thing I was addicted to is gone. And no one really has it. I don't know where to get it. Mm. And my friends say, well, we're going to rob this veterinarian clinic. Mm. And so I said, okay, I care about my dad a lot. And I care about getting high. And I guarantee that there's morphine and other opiate drugs there. So I'm like, all right, I'll, uh, I'll drive. 
I'm not going in, but I'll mm -hmm. drive. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I took him there. You know, I was sitting in the car. We were, you know, they had ski masks, you know, the whole thing. And their plan was to just throw a rock through the window, climb in, grab the safe full of stuff, and okay. bring it home, oh, and then we'd break open the safe. Mm -hmm. And, um, you did, know, yeah. Did it happen? Did you make it? Absolutely, yeah. They, we went, it was nighttime, it was dark around two in the morning. I parked the car um, a couple blocks away from this veterinarian clinic. It's in Wisconsin, so it's a small town, you know, big spaces between and uh, between buildings and big fields and so there's a big field where you know we could kind of approach the back mm -hmm. and there was nothing and so um, I got out of the car and kind of watched them go in there's three of them all in black and ski masks and they you know I saw them you know throw a rock through the window there's no alarm you know they come out and they're like before we got in we were so like excited and just um, and it was really just the uh, adrenaline of it all that was exciting. I wasn't really even thinking about what we were getting. Um, but, you know, I knew that my dad was in a lot of pain and he couldn't get any painkillers and he'd be comfortable with, you know, needles and stuff because he was diabetic as well and was mm -hmm. used to doing insulin. And I'm like, I know, you know, that not only will I get high from this, but he, you know, I can help my dad. Okay. That was honestly a thought in my mind. I know it, in retrospect it might sound. Um, but you got caught. We did. This. Yeah, so after we had brought it back home, you know, we had got my dad's titanium drill bit, drilled open the safe. Mm -hmm. So there's all these vials of different drugs, morphine, hydromorphone, Dilaudid, a lot of the same stuff that Michael Jackson and Prince um, overdosed from. So I was playing with some really, really hard stuff. Um, well, one day, you know, I'm laying in bed, not going to school, I'm about 16, 17. You were not going to school for years. Yeah, no, not right? really. Yeah. I was really just doing this, mm -hmm. and um, I've, you know, well, I'm, uh, I'm alone. I'm, I'm in bed again. The same time, kind of the same way that I was woken up when mm -hmm. my father had the illness. Only this time, it's my friend who was asleep on the couch. Now I had just done some morphine a few hours earlier. My girlfriend was just over. I was sleeping after her visiting, and she had gone back to school because she was, you know, a good student. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was not, and so. I, all I remember is my friend coming in, we called him Frodo, he looked like Frodo Baggins from Lord of the Rings, Elijah Wood, he looks a lot like him. So Frodo comes in and he shakes me, he's like, Tim, Tim, there's cops all around inside the house, you gotta get up. And the weirdest thing is that I was totally okay with it, because mm -hmm. I was like, of course, of course they are. I've been doing this for so long. But were you scared of what's going to happen? No, that's the weirdest thing. Because of the drugs or because of Not at your all attitude? I just, there was this feeling of just like, this is happening. Mm -hmm. and there's nothing I can do about it. And then I have nowhere to go. Maybe also we wanted some change and you knew that this is going to cause the change. Exactly. Right? I knew what I was doing was wrong. Um, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I, I very much didn't like what I was doing. I didn't know how to get out. Uh -huh. But the drugs I was doing made me feel good. And so, it's just this constant cycle. So I open the door and there's an like some type of assault. I'm not a gun guy, but it looked like an assault rifle in my face, uh -huh. full like riot gear type thing in my face. Just get on the floor. And um, I'm like, all right, all right, you know, fine. You know, put my hands behind my back. The next thing I know, I'm getting handcuffed and I'm on the ground. And this detective that had come by my house about a month before, told me, he'd come by my house about a month before and said, hey, 
you, um, one of your friends snitched on you. They told the police. They told us, we got you on wire. So you have two choices. We'll either, you know, we'll either arrest you mm -hmm. or you can, you know, snitch on some of your buddies. You can go undercover and, and do that. And I said, no, I'll call you. <laughs> and so, you know, I never called him, you know, and so maybe part of me knew this was coming, mm -hmm. but at the time I wasn't thinking it was going to happen. And, and then, you know, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, spending, um, I'm spending six months in jail mm -hmm. um, and then another six months uh, in a halfway house. About, you know, a month before this happened, before, you know, the robbery, I had found out that I got um, a girlfriend of mine pregnant. Um, and so I, had a, I also had a kid coming and I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to go to college. I wasn't going to be, able to, at this point in my life, I'm not going to be able to get a good job. Um, and I just, I needed to get my shit together. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, being arrested was the best thing for me. Hmm. What happened after you left the jail? Well, my son was born. Um, I was in, they put me in a transitional living mm -hmm. home. So it's called a halfway house. And so there were about 10 guys living there that had just gotten out of jail. And so it's kind of like getting them used to being out in the real world again, kind of a rehabilitative okay. thing. So how did you transition from this whole jail experience to running your own company yes. in Wisconsin? Right. So Which I know that then you kind of sold or got acquired by a company here that's in right. the Valley. So let's talk about this um, Sure. So period. it took about six years to get to the Valley from there. Mm -hmm. But as I got out of jail, my son was born and seeing my son Jaden born and holding him just changed my life. And I knew, like, this isn't just about me feeling good anymore. This isn't just about me scratching my own itches. This isn't just about me getting what I need as a consumer of the world and, and whatever. It's about making sure that I can take care of this other human now, and I have to. Um, and so I started in a, in a call center taking cell phone insurance claims. So these are people that, mm -hmm. you know, ha it, this is before smartphones. Yeah. So people would drop their phone and um, it would break. And then they would go, oh, I have this cell phone insurance through my carrier, so I'll file a claim. And so I was taking 80 calls a day of people like, hey, I dropped my phone. Can you send me a replacement? And what happened to your um, girlfriend in the meantime, too? Were you in a we, we got married. Oh. Right. So I really took, you know, I took responsibility for everything. And I honestly, this wasn't, you know, I had love for this girl. I cared about her as a person, but she wasn't somebody I was in love with prior to having a baby. Mm -hmm. I had learned to love her and we'd worked, tried to make it work for mm -hmm. a while. Um, and you had another child. That's right. So her and I, two years later, after things had stabilized and I had done well with uh, at Travel Guard, eventually I was their top salesperson. Mm -hmm. um, in a, in a different department. And so, you know, we, we had decided to have another baby. Okay. So what was your startup uh, yeah. doing in yeah. Wisconsin? So and tell me a little bit about the situation, how the company from Silicon Valley got to know about yes. you and acquired you yep. so that you arrived here. Absolutely. So one, I saw an opportunity for a travel insurance aggregator website because I'm like, we're selling travel insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, but what if there was like a kayak for like travel insurance, right? And you could, um, you know, you could put in your trip dates and then we would compare all of the travel insurance policies so you could find the best one. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is then we as the middleman on that would get a very nice commission because travel insurance pays about 30, 
30% commission to people who are selling it. Mm -hmm. And so some of these trips average, uh, you know, $700,000. Mm -hmm. So per policy, it's just pure money. And all the only challenge was partnering with other insurance companies other than TravelGuard. Mm. And so um, I had put all the wireframes together. I, uh, one of the guys that I worked with um, on another team who was an engineer, you know, I got him excited about it. I told him about it. And we had started it and we named it uh, Trip Cake. Mm -hmm. which the tagline was peace of, uh, peace of mind is a piece of cake. Wow. Yeah. So one. we thought we were super clever. And uh, before we even got it off the ground, um, through my work at TravelGuard, I was identifying you know, startups that maybe would be a good fit um, to you know, integrate either our travel insurance or our worldwide um, services that we mm -hmm. offer. So TravelGuard was also a 24-7 emergency services operator. Um, later, Life360 baked that into their premium product. Yeah, so how did they, did you pitch your startup to Life360 or were they your client? Yeah, how did that so happen? <laughs> by this time... By In the Wisconsin and Silicon Valley, right? How exactly. Was, yeah. yeah, so my, I had been divorced for, from the girl I just talked mm -hmm. about for about two years. And I was, I was bored. And so working on this, this idea was really cool, but then I had a hard time with the engineer. He kind of didn't need any money. He made plenty of money. He, want, he told me, he was like, you know, I want for nothing. Mm -hmm. This is just kind of a fun project. Well, I'm like, well, I'm trying to build something big. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, I don't want to just make a lot of money from this, but I want to build a big thing, right? That people know and remember mm -hmm. and, and all of these things. And so um, we, before we even got anything launched, right? We just had like a, a prototype that we didn't even go live yet. Mm -hmm. I started talking to Life360 as part of my work for a potential partnership. It was way too early, but I ended up, um, I saw an article on TechCrunch that Life360 had raised $10 million and that they were a, um, a family locator app where you could see where your family is on a map. Mm -hmm. But what I saw right away is that the app was free and there were no advertisements and they were raising money off of users. So I had been watching the Valley and learning a little bit about this and I was like, they're going to need to make money at some point. Mm -hmm. And so I sent Chris an email. I found his email on, online. Chris Hulls is the CEO of Life360. And I found his, uh, his email. And I said, hey, how about we find a way for you to make some money off of these users by utilizing some of our emergency services? Mm -hmm. You could include it in a premium product. So he decided to acquire you. Did he pay you for that? How what so was the deal? Yeah, so the, it was a good deal. Uh -huh. And so my engineer at the startup had, has, you know, is gone. Mm -hmm. I just kind of have it. It's mm -hmm. just sitting there. I don't really want to grab another engineer. I don't really want to work on it anymore because I'm like, what do, I'm just selling travel insurance. That's not, it's the same thing. The only difference is now I own the business. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I, I called Chris one day after we had been talking for weeks about the potential partnership, um, and I said, hey, do you know anyone out there who needs sales help? And he said, oh, well, yeah, I know a lot of people out here. I mean, can you, would you, would you want to move? I thought you were doing pretty good there. I'm like, yeah, I am doing good, but I'm just I'm bored. And, um, and he's like, yeah, but don't you make pretty good money in, for Wisconsin? I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, okay. I don't feel, I don't see myself retiring here in Wisconsin and mm -hmm. living the kind of, suburban middle-class life that everyone seems to aspire to. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. I tried it for a long time. I just, I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so Chris said, 
Well, I can probably get you, you know, some leads. I'd be happy to, you know, introduce you to some people. I know people at Oracle and, and Salesforce, and they make really good money. Uh, but you know, we're looking for a business development person, which sounds like you'd be a little better at working on the product and maybe more of a business development angle, because it sounds like you're kind of bored with sales. I said, I'm really bored with sales. And he said, Well, can you come out here? And I said, Yeah. And he said, Well, what would it take? I'm like, Well, I got this startup. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what is it? Mm-hmm. And I told him what it was, and we talked about it. He liked the idea. He asked me a lot of questions. You know how when you talk to another entrepreneur, you kind of get grilled. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we do with each other. And so um, he said, well, tell you what, I'll just buy that company from you. So for how much did he buy it? It was a good amount. Good for you. It was good for okay. me. Okay. Um, so you moved here. Yes. And started working for Life360. Yes, as their vice president of business development. Mm-hmm. You moved to San Francisco. Yeah, I had I had just met a girl. Uh, to there's a lot of girls. I'm sorry, but there's. <laughs> well, that's life. For some of us. Um, <laughs> But but, uh, but you also did you move with your kids? Yeah, that's right. So I had met a girl two months earlier, uh-huh. and she was great. She was a little young, but she really liked the idea of of moving, and she loved California, and she was really good with my kids, and she was, and and so I kind of floated the idea by her, and yeah, she said she'd love to go. How about your girlfriend and your kids? I, I mean, your that's wife. That's the girl I met. Oh, I had been divorced. Yes, but didn't she want to keep the kids? I was a single dad the whole time. She had moved to New Jersey. Okay. With her and made a new family, I so see. she has two other children now with a really good guy, and they're doing well. You moved here, started working for Life Three Hundred and Sixty. By the way, is this when you moved to Tiburon? Yes. When you had no idea where you are because yes. it was like pure night. Yeah, exactly. You had no clue. This is such a stunning place, right? And this is not the cheapest place, by the way. No. Well, it's cheaper than in the city of San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, but Tiburon. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it when I. You know, I came up here to meet with Chris. I flew out here to just kind of see what it was like because he said, "Look, if you're going to move your kids up here, you got to learn this place." Mm-hmm. And Chris was always, as a the CEO of a family-focused company, he was always real focused mm-hmm. on on what I was doing as a as a father, as a provider. And so he said, "Look, if you want to come out here, you probably don't want to live in the city." And I'm like, "Well, where do you think I should go?" And he's like, "You should live in Tiburon." And I said, "Tiburon? What's that?" He's like. He's like, oh, it's just really good family. You'll fit in good there. You'll fit in really well. And yeah, I said, we're all the billionaires and stars, and this t- he I didn't know. say. I, he didn't tell me any of that. And, uh-huh. and so when, you know, when we, I, what happened was, is Chris, you know, brought me on the ferry at the Embarcadero, you know, from the city to Tiburon, and it was like one of the last ferries, so it was night. And so I went home and I just looked for places to rent in Tiburon, and I found a place uh, for about twenty-eight hundred. That was a two-bedroom townhome. Um, which was comparable to what I'd see in the city. Certainly, this was you know four years ago, mm-hmm. um, so it was a little high. But I, had, you know, two kids, and we were doing a. It was a huge downsize for us because we lived in Wisconsin. I had a you know a nice, um, a nice home, with you know land and stuff like that, which out here doesn't exist. But so I moved there. Wake up the next morning, and we look outside the balcony, and there's just mansions mm-hmm. everywhere. And quickly I realized, I'm the poorest guy. In this place, like I have, I like everyone around me clearly has more money, and I, I did no research on the place. But as I'm living there and I'm talking to people, they're like, "Oh yeah, Carlos Santana lives up there, and Mark Benioff from Salesforce is down in Belvedere." And I'm like, "Where am I?" 
And my, my girlfriend, you know, who's, who's younger than me and, you know, came from Wisconsin as well, she's like, I feel like I'm in a movie. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know how we got here. During your work at Life360, uh, you came up with uh, an idea for a new product. Mm -hmm. So after leaving Life360, I started doing sales contracting in the area. Um, and I met a couple of guys um, at a company called Safe Shepherd. They were a neat little company started by two guys that I really liked uh, named Rob and Jeff, um, who came from UPenn and just were really smart, hardworking guys. And they had somehow found a way to be profitable for this identity product that I didn't completely understand. But it was interesting because they had been through 500 startups, but they had paid back all their investors. So they were completely profitable. I'd never seen that here, hmm. right? And so I was like, that's really not my style, but they're doing something mm -hmm. that's cool and that I'm going to have to learn when I do my own company. I'm going to have to learn to manage profit at some point. We can't all raise money forever. And so, you know, I start working with them to try to sell their products to um, businesses. And in order to do that, I came up with a product uh, called, we had later called Sales Beach to automate the prospecting of business to business selling. So what the product did is it would set up a drip campaign, but with personalized emails that looked personal. Um, and the idea was if I'm trying to reach a VP of business development at, at, at any other company, or if I'm anyone that I'm, uh, any buyer, customer that I'm trying to reach in a business to business fashion, this, the drip campaign would automatically reach out to them until they responded in a way that was spaced out from my experience in sales where I would know you're not going to piss anyone off if you kind of set the cadence like this. And so with all of my experience there, you know, I developed some wireframes and mock-ups for how this product would look, you know, who the customers would be, and I, I shared it with them. And they were like, yes, like let's, let's just whip it together here. Mm -hmm. Like we, our product's kind of in maintenance mode. And so then they helped me put together a prototype. Would it be already um, obvious that this is going to be your own company? No. I didn't know what we were going to do with it. I'm just helping them because I really like them. So how did it happen that you became a CEO of this new company? Yeah, so it was actually Robert, um, the CEO at Safe Shepherd. As we got this product together and used it, it worked so well. Like I, I got responses from vice presidents at Oracle, from Disney, from Pixar, from Netflix, from companies that I would never think to uh, that if I picked up the phone and cold called or if I just tried to email mm -hmm. and do it myself, it would have taken so much time. And so I told them, I said, look, this is awesome. Like we should just do this together. And Robert said, you know, Robert and Jeff, you know, talked about it for a while and then they, Robert came back, took me out for coffee and said, look, why don't you take this and run with it? You would be an awesome CEO. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time anyone ever said that to me. So he impressed you with this um, offer. Yes. And, but also he offered you something that is not super Silicon Valley style, I would say. Because he decided to invest in this company $50,000. That's right. And he claimed to have 60%. That's right. Basically, Robert said, look, we'll give you 50 grand but I'm gonna keep 60% of the business. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why? And he wouldn't work at this company. No, he was a bit, exactly. just based on the work they had already done. Now at the time, coming from Wisconsin, I'm used to getting screwed on mm -hmm. everything, right? I mean, I worked for a guy that owned 100% of TravelGuard and sold it for 200 million. And um, my point is, is that 
I was just excited to run something and I couldn't believe someone actually wanted me to be, thought I could be a CEO uh -huh. and I started getting excited but I also went back and talked to some of the friends I mentioned that I met who were involved in the early days at Salesforce and they said, don't take that deal. Don't take that deal. Mm -hmm. You can raise money on this product. And, but I didn't know anything about that. And so there was an offer, you know, and I took it. And I, I had a lot of arguments with them about it. We got really heated. And I remember asking him, Rob's about my age, right? Um, and he always landed in a good place. But this one, he just wouldn't budge. He was a, you know, a tough negotiator in general, uh, which is fine. A lot of people just like negotiating. Not my thing, but it's mm -hmm. fine. I'll do it when I have to, and I'll make sure I get a good deal. But at this point, I'm like, I have an offer on the table. I still think, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because without that experience, I wouldn't be here. It's just about being warned um, early enough not to really get into this because you, 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 can, you can make it happen differently and still have the ex amazing experience and still have. That's right. Still, you know, run a startup in Silicon Valley, but having a different deal, which actually, in your case, led to what happened. That's right. Uh, that you were fired from this company. So let's talk about what was happening in, in, in between uh, within this time. So Robert actually was also the person that um, convinced you to participate in 500 Startups. Well, yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing was, mm -hmm. is when we interviewed with 500 Startups, we met, uh, I met with Dave, I impressed Dave. And, um, you know, when they accepted us, I met with um, Parker Thompson before I took the deal because because uh, I met Parker briefly and I knew he was really smart. So Parker was a, a venture partner at 500 Startups. Now he's a venture partner at AngelList. And still, I met with him just yesterday, still one of the smartest guys I know. And he said to me, he said, I don't think you need these guys. He's like, I think, you know, you could, but he just said this without saying it, that I could reapply mm -hmm. to 500 Startups with the wireframes, take the name off that we had come up with, and that um, that I'd be able to get in. But so I wasn't reading between the lines. Mm -hmm. They liked you, they liked the product. Uh, they obviously were concerned about the deal. Yes, they which, were very concerned about the deal. Which is still weird that they accepted you with this deal, because that also involves them, you know, right. as investors. Yeah, there was a, that's, we spent a lot of time talking about that, and mm -hmm. Robert pushed just as hard against them as he did with me. And I eventually, I just said, let's just do this. Let's just do this. We'll fix the cap table later. We're going to raise uh, more money anyway. We'll fix it then. That doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. But I thought it would. Like many of us. Why do you think that Dave uh, still agreed to approve you to the program? Business was doing so well. I had already, I had major clients using the project. We had Berkshire Hathaway. We had, um, you know, some of my friends from AIG were using it, um, you know, and the traction was good. We had about five, six, seven thousand um, dollars in monthly recurring revenue and we hadn't lost a single customer. Mm. Um, and from everything I could see, there was really nothing in the way. Uh, they liked you even that much when you ran out of cash? I ran out, yeah. So I had hired, after getting into the program, I hired out a team. Um, I, I loved these people. Like they were just some of the best fun people to work with mm -hmm. that I ever met. And it was the first time I was a CEO, so it was really exciting. And um, at the time, I, Dave and I were relatively close. And you know where I sat in the accelerator was pretty close to him. And so we got um, a little more one-on-one -on -one time than a lot of some of the other startups. And as we were running out of money, I have like, I'm texting Dave, like I still have text messages on my phone 
saved from Dave and I where I'm like, Dave, I'm running out of money, but the business is looking good. We just added three more customers and revenue is still going up, but I can't make payroll. And he's like, okay, how much you need? Uh, 40,000. It's like, okay, here's the deal. Wasn't great terms, but it wasn't as bad as the 60% chunk I already don't have. So I'm just gonna you know, try, to keep the, try to keep the wheels on the bus. Mm -hmm. What was happening inside the company um, right after 500 startups when you know all the joy and excitement maybe a little went a little you know down uh, with your CTO actually whom mm. you hired from AngelList. That's right. Um, well, we know that you know it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, what was what was the worst part of it? The worst part of it was as we were as we were running out of money. Um, and I was trying to raise more money. At this time, you know, you have to remember I was a single dad. Um, my wife that I had moved, who became the girl I moved to California with, um, you know, she had left two months earlier. So not only was the company running out of money, mm. while, but we were still bringing on more customers. The product was still good, the traction was still there. We were running out of money, so I'm trying to raise money from our current investors and do the, you know, and do a, do a bridge round, which no one ever wants to do. You don't even say the bridge word, right? You just don't say that. You try to come up with another word for it because mm -hmm. it's, investors know it's bad. So the, the worst part was, is as this is happening, I'm, I'm a single dad, I'm taking care of two kids at night, I'm on the phone all day with investors, with customers, with my team, I'm not sleeping, I'm under a lot of stress, and... Um, what was not going well in the company? Well, there was, within the company, there wasn't anything yet other than the money running out. Mm -hmm. um, but Andrew had started getting, Andrew the CTO, who I really like and is a really good guy and did really good work for us. He started getting really scared and nervous that we were running out of money. And um, I, I tried to encourage him and be like, no, this is fine, we're gonna get out of this. You know, the, the business looks good. Like, I, I may not understand fundraising as well as people here, but I understand how business works and the numbers look good. Like, there's not gonna be a problem. And so he continued, um, you know, to get scared. I continued to take on more stress. Um, as a result of that, I stopped sleeping. I start getting a little more aggressive with Andrew and upset that he's kind of reacting in a way where he's kind of hiding and kind of like a turtle going into a shell and I felt terrible that I couldn't pull him out of it and I, there was just nothing I could do and he stopped talking to me. Mm -hmm. Just stopped talking to me. I didn't know what was going on. The next thing I know the board is getting in touch with me and they're saying that, you know, that Andrew is really concerned about you. They think, you know, he doesn't want to work with you anymore. And Andrew was your co-founder That's too, right. right? He also had uh, shares. Yeah, he had the same amount I had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was not 60%. Yeah. Um, and then they start talking about potentially firing me. I find out from some of my advisors that I brought in, including some of my friends I met on the ferry who worked at Salesforce. And one of my advisors in particular told them, said, look, Tim is the lifeblood of your company. All of the customers you have are from him. If he goes away, your company goes away. And I'm sure the rest of your, the investors would agree with that. Um, Andrew continued to push against it and said, I won't work there if Tim works there. Um, that advisor said, look, Tim just needs a break. I've seen this before, okay? Stress does weird things to entrepreneurs. 
just needs a break. So, you know, I took a break. I went to Austin to see some friends of mine. I'm a musician, so we went and, you know, played some music. And then I came back, and I'm getting served termination papers from the lawyer that I brought into the company at Auric. Um, and so, yeah. You were in the mental clinic at that time when you got this termination. That's right? right, that's right. So what had happened is, you know, I was getting, I was found out at that time that I had a uh, mental illness and that I'm, you know, bipolar and that mm -hmm. I started experiencing a manic episode. Now it was more of a hypomanic episode, which means it wasn't psychotic, but it was, you know, I'm not sleeping, mm -hmm. I'm sleeping two hours a night, I'm working all day, I'm not eating, I'm working out all the time, I'm getting a lot done. So for a few months, I'm feeling pretty awesome about that. But the problem is, is that the way mental illness works is as you get closer and you keep ramping up, it's like a black hole and you start getting mm -hmm. sucked in faster. When did it start? About exactly two years ago. So about June, July. Time. Yeah, so it was within the sales beach um, yes. you know, situation and running the company. That's right. That probably happened because of all the stress and all the pressure that was happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's but something that is not that uncommon in Silicon Valley. I know, but no one talks about it. And this is the thing that really bothers me because, you know, I'm someone with a criminal record, a mental illness, no college education really, and I'm here talking about that I have a mental illness mm -hmm. and that I have all these things. And there's guys from, you know, Ivy League schools that have a similar problem that have a lot of shame and they just, you know, there's kind of this stigma about it. But if you remember what my advisor said, who you know, or like I said, came from Salesforce in the early days. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this before. This happens all the time. He just needs a break. Get that taken care of. Go to the hospital, do what you need to do. It's fine. Mm -hmm. You know? And actually that moment when you went to the hospital, you agreed to do it on your own. Absolutely. Because first they forced you, but you were acting as everything was okay. Right. But then you decided to do it in order to save the company. That's so right. So that your co-founder, Andrew, would... That's right. Um, you would like just finally say, okay, you know, it ha it's finally happening. He's getting the treatment and it's going to be all right. Exactly. And that's also when you got, when you came back, you that's got right. those uh, emails. The about termination letters yeah. from Joseph at so Oric. So cruel. Yeah. Right. And so that was really upsetting, but it was also mostly hurtful. I'd never missed a payroll with this company. I had paid those employees rather than paying myself and I drained my savings to pay my own bills. They could do it because they voted this. There were four people on the board. Yeah. Um, you know, Robert and, and Jeff and Andrew and myself. Um, and they did it without uh, meeting you. Correct. So what did you do next? Well, I got, um, after, you know, getting out of the hospital, um, my kids, you know, moved, or my boys, Jane and Gavin, moved with their mom um, and her new husband in Salem, Oregon. Um, I was getting evicted from my place in Tiburon. Mm -hmm. And so I called that same advisor from Salesforce and I said, what do I do? What, 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 do, what, do, I, what do I do? I feel like I'm ruined here. Mm -hmm. Like I had this big opportunity to, I, I felt like I had the potential to build a billion dollar company. In my head I saw how it could work hundreds of different ways. And now that's gone. And I didn't do anything wrong, right? Like I didn't, all I did was take a bad deal work my ass off, raise more money than Safe Shepherd ever did on their own product. And I didn't ask to have a mental illness. I didn't hurt anybody while I did have that. Mm -hmm. 
And yet I felt a lot of shame because I couldn't, you know, because of that. And yeah, so I didn't know what to do. So I, I called my friend who's very much more experienced than this and, and has seen this before, as we talked about. And he said, look, it's like part of your plan's got to be coming back here, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. He's like, yeah, you want to get your kids back in Tiburon, right? Like, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, look, you just need a longer break than I thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's all it's going to be. It's just going to be a longer break. Get a 12-month plan, work backwards, get a six-month plan. you got two to three startups left in you. But first, go up to Oregon, be with your kids, take some time off, and then come back at it, you know, 12, a year or two from now. That's what you're doing right now. Exactly. You live in Portland. Yes. Why do you say that you are the least favorite uh, Portland startup founder? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm on the favorites list, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm the least favorite because I, while I'm rebellious and mercurial like Portland seems to pretend to like, I'm not pretentious like Portland can be. I'm mm -hmm. not a hipster and I speak my mind and I talk about things like this and that makes people uncomfortable. So I've found that people like me but they don't, uh, I'm not the face of Portland, that's for sure. <laughs> not the face they want. You're now working at a company called Connected. Yes. Um, that's really close to your interests. Mm -hmm. um, and do you have a plan to start another business? I will. When you get rest, right? Enough yeah. rest and come back here to the valley? Yeah, I'm really passionate about the startup I'm working with now with Connected. They're a behavioral health company that um, I think has a lot of potential to do a lot of social good, not only save, um, not only make providers, psychiatrists more money, but also improve the quality of life for their patients mm -hmm. and make their uh, treatment more effective um, and to really just bring up the, the efficacy of what they do. Now, you know, just like my, um, just like my friend and advisor told me, um, you know, this isn't, this isn't the last you'll see of me and that you'll see after this, um, There'll be, uh, you'll see another company from Tim Schwab. Uh, would you, if you had a choice, would you totally um, skip that time with um, Sales Beach or would you no. still keep it in your Yeah, I'd still uh, have it because now that won't happen again. I already got that over with. Yeah. Right? So, so you don't regret this happening? No, not at all. Some of it, like honestly, as awful as it was, it was the best thing to happen mm -hmm. to me. And I've got nothing but love for everyone involved for it, even though I disagree with some of their decision making. I think at the end of the day, everyone's good people, but some bad choices were made. Tim, it was a um, great pleasure to have you here on the show. Um, it's a great story, very inspirational well, to you. say that, you know, you've been through so much, um, but you're not done. No. And you're only getting stronger with every period of your life. That's right. And so are we all. And I wish you all the best um, with your next endeavors. Thank you. And thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you.